Greetings and salutations. Welcome to Life and Books and Everything. I'm Kevin DeYoung, and I am joined here with Colin Hansen and Justin Taylor. And we will introduce our special guest in just a moment. Good to be with you again. We have had a great lineup of guests this season, and today is no exception. I do want to mention at the beginning, again, thanks to Crossway for sponsoring this episode. And it would be appropriate to mention the devotional from Paul David Tripp. It's very hard to find good devotionals, really. There's a lot out there, but good ones are hard to find. But Paul writes good ones. Uh, Journey to the Cross, a 40-day Lenten devotional. So if you're looking for something during the Lenten season, Paul Tripp uh, uses this book to invite us to set aside time from the busyness of our lives and think for these 40 days on the suffering and sacrifice of Christ. Certainly that would be appropriate and would be beneficial. So check out that book from Crossway from Paul Tripp. All right. Good to have the gang here and our special guest. We have Steve Nichols here with us, and we're going to talk about this wonderful book, which he's written, R.C. Sproul, a life. Now, Steve, I went online. Here's what the uh, Wikipedia page says for Stephen Nichols. Stephen Nichols is an American actor recognized for his roles on American daytime soap operas. He has portrayed the role of Steve Johnson on NBC's Days of Our Lives. He joined the cast of ABC's General Hospital as Stefan Cassidine. From 2009 to 2013, he portrayed the role of Tucker McCall on The Young and the Restless. Is this you? I will clearly set the record straight here, Kevin. That is not I. As much as I wish it was me, it's not I. Uh, Steve, I think you could pull it off. I think you could pull it off. Of the four of us, we would all agree. As soon as you said Wikipedia page, I knew exactly where you were going with that. Have you seen that before? And I think his one character, I think the Tucker character, had an eye patch. So, I mean, this guy's so cool. Let's just put it out there. Yeah. I mean, look at I, these names. Stefan Cassidy. Yeah. Tucker McCall. So cool. Have you guys ever done the game where you find your soap opera name? You take your middle name <laughs> plus the street that you grew up on. So, mine is Lee Parkside, which is a, not a bad soap <laughs> opera name. Colin, what what would... Christopher Rural Route One. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> <laughs> no. Justin. Gerald Blackstone. Oh, Ooh. that's that's pretty good. That's like a Steve? espionage novel character there, mm-hmm. Justin. Mine would be similar to Collins. It would be Jeffrey Rural Drive Number Two. Oh, you uh <laughs> rural folks. Okay, the real Stephen J. Nichols is president of Reformation Bible College, chief academic officer for Ligonier and a Ligonier Teaching Fellow. He hosts a number of podcasts, Five Minutes in Church History and others. The author of numerous books and resources related to Jonathan Edwards. And he is the co-editor of the Crossways Theologians of the Christian Life series. So good to have you with us. And most important, Steve and I once had a hamburger together in Hamburg. We did. I totally remember our hamburger in Hamburg. Very poetic. Yes, it was was wonderful. All right, we're going to talk about R.C. This is a a great book. Now, I know you, you say that at the beginning of the podcast, but really, I thought I'd read this over a couple of weeks. It's 300 and... uh, 50 pages when you get all the appendices. I think I read it in two or three nights. I just couldn't put it down. It's really well written. You've done a really good job. So congratulations on that. It really is. And the pictures in the middle are great and tells RC story. So well done on this really fantastic book. Steve, when did you first meet RC? Mm. So I was a college student. This was back in the... uh... PCRT days, the Philadelphia Conference Reform Theology hosted there at 10th Press uh, in Philadelphia. And I, I remember it very vividly. A friend of mine and I were standing in line, you know, for the book signing at these conferences and a classmate of mine, and he had one of RC's books. He was getting it signed. 
And as RC was signing it, he asked him, Dr. Sproul, uh, by any chance, are you going to be speaking in New Jersey soon? And Dr. Sproul looked up at him and said, if I am going to be in New Jersey, it's not going to be by chance. Uh, so that was my my first personal <laughs> meeting with Dr. Sproul. So I decided I'm not going to say anything. I just handed him my book and had him sign it. Uh, and then several decades later, uh, met him again, came down here for a conference back in 2010, I believe. And uh had a dinner with him. I was all nervous, you know, meeting Dr. Sproul. And honestly, I remember within just a couple minutes, just being put at perfect ease uh, with Dr. Sproul, with Vesta, and just had an enjoyable evening with him. What did he think of you working on this biography? <laughs> so the first time I asked him to do it, uh, this was back a few years. Uh, we had dinner, we were at dinner together, RC and Vesta. And uh, I said, Dr. Sproul, uh, what do you think about my writing a biography? I said, oh, that's great. Great idea. On who? <laughs> and I said, well, you. And he goes, on, on me? This, there's no story here. And, and then uh, I think Vesta very quickly said, oh, we're private people. Uh, so I thought, we'll see how this conversation goes. But eventually uh, he came around and and thought there might be some merit uh, in it, and was uh, very gracious and gave his uh, his full blessing to the project. And I was able to spend many uh, sessions with him, just sitting in his home with a open mic and just talking about his life. What was your process? Say a little bit more about that for doing the biography. Uh, how did you do your research? And was it hard? That's interesting that they would say no. they're private people. Was it hard to get access to really uncover their story? So one of the things that made it hard, uh, Kevin, is that the, they don't keep things, the Sproles. Like they're constantly throwing out stuff. I couldn't even find the original manuscript for the holiness of God. I think they just threw it out when they made the move down here. Um, he had correspondence with Van Til. I think about five letters passed between RC and Van Til. They don't have it. Oh. So so there I know <laughs> you think of all this. Um, but there still was a lot of things. Uh, the main sources were the the sessions that I had with him recording. And then after his passing, Vesta and I had a few more sessions to fill in some details. He did record some memoir sessions, video record uh, with Ligonier, so I had access to those. Had his original notebooks uh, from his student days and the lecture outlines for his early lectures at the study center up in Ligonier. And then I had his library, and that was a lot of fun because I could sort of go through and see the sources and read his margin notes. Um, so those were some of the sources that I had. And, and what sort of biography would you say this is? I mean, last year I interviewed James Eglinton, of course, his great biography of Bavink, a critical biography, not negative, but a critical, proper academic biography of Bavink. So that's one kind. There's the there John Piper biographies of heroes that, you know, it's it's sophisticated, but it's meant to inspire. And then there's, yeah. you know, missionary hagiography that's just rah-rah. What sort of category would you put this biography of Sproul? I would say it is not in the heavy academic category, uh, but neither is it in the sort of inspirational uh, approach. I think it's somewhere in between. I, I recognize that there's going to be more biographies to come, and I hope there are, and I hope there are that that are of that academic nature. I, mean, I, I think there could be dissertations to come. So I did recognize that maybe this could be a good source for them. So I wanted to be careful and thoughtful in the research and present it well and present sort of the whole story so that as biographers, further biographers come along, this might be a good starting point for them that they can build off of. But I find, uh, and I haven't done a full, this is the first biography I wrote, you know, from terms of life to death. I had biographical material in other books that I've written or written historical theological books on historical figures. But when I do write biographical material, I find the person commendable. And I want to commend them to the reader. I, I want to say, yeah, this, this person wasn't perfect, certainly, uh, but I think this person uh, was a faithful servant. And here's what I think 
was their, their life was about. Here's what some of their key ideas were. And I think if you spent some time with this person, it could be helpful to you. Uh, so I wanted to cover his life. And I did want to cover what I thought were some of his main contributions to the church, to the Christian tradition. So uh, I wanted to sort of pause at a few key points and elaborate a little bit um, to sort of stake out some claims where I think RC made an, made a good contribution, an actual contribution. Well, you, you've done that really well, and I think it does fit that middle ground. It's not uh, a critical biography in the academic sense, but it's not a hundred pages. Uh, it, it's not a, a funeral eulogy either. Just let's celebrate the man. Clearly, you're sympathetic to him, as as all of us are, and want to celebrate lots that's worth celebrating. But you do a nice job of telling the story with good prose uh, in a way that's obviously appreciative of RC without getting so purple in its prose that we lose sight of a man. Let, let me ask a, a, a multi-part question and then see what Colin and Justin want to chime in. I got lots of questions. We won't get through all of them, but give me a few bullet points here shaping influences on RC. And, and I'm going to give you four categories, Pittsburgh, Gerstner, Burkauer, and Vesta. Say a little bit about those shaping influences on RC as a man and a theologian. I think Pittsburgh has a lot to do with it. The more I got into the story, I sensed the texture of time and place. You know, I think that's true of all of us. We live in contexts and we live in a context of our times and of our place. And, you know, all about Pittsburgh is is the place that impacts RC. There was a toughness to him. There was something that was real about him. Uh, he had clearly a, an academic mind, but so many people with academic minds have difficulty relating to audiences or relating to laity. And there was just a common man down to earth nature to RC. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with Pittsburgh. Uh, there was definitely a toughness to RC. Uh, he, he, he loved Luther because Luther was the one who took the courageous stand. And I think you can see that in Pittsburgh. Uh, and then, of course, he was shaped by Pittsburgh athletics. Uh, mm -hmm. So Steelers and Pirates uh, were very much a part of that. So I think Pittsburgh was a huge influence, just the place. He wrote it himself. Uh, you can take the man out of Pittsburgh, but you can't take Pittsburgh out of the man. You mentioned Gershner. So here he is at a liberal seminary, um, and Gershner's his lifeline. Uh, he, you know, he, he comes into a class. We, we have a professor here uh, who also went to Pittsburgh, and the Old Testament professor there would start the class off by holding up a Bible and saying, this is not the word of God. This is not the word of God. This is not the word of God. He'd say it three times every single class he taught. Uh, he mentions, R.C. mentions sitting in his New Testament survey class and the professor saying, okay, next is the book of Romans, but there's nothing really here. So we're just going to skip oh, and go right to oh, the Corinthians. No. I mean, so, so here you go to seminary and you spend literally zero time in Romans. So now we've got Gershner uh, who just was... Um, he describes Gershner as a lifeline as uh, for him uh, through seminary. And then Gershner's toughness. Uh, R.C. saw Gershner's mind like a bear trap. And um, also Gershner's just labor. Uh, he, he worked hard as a scholar. So I think all that influenced him. And then we get to Burkauer. Of course, the funny thing is, R.C. goes to the Netherlands not knowing a word of Dutch. Yeah, that's <laughs> and so. <laughs> And, and he spent an hour to to work through. I mean, all day to work through a page of twelve Dutch. hours. Yeah, twelve hours, one page. So it's funny. He went to Gershner, and Gershner hands him the reading list for his first class. Or Burkauer. Or I'm sorry, Burkauer. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Burkauer hands him pushes the reading list across to RC, and RC reads it, and it's you know so many books in Dutch, so many books in Latin or German, and so many books in French. And and Burkauer could see the expression on RC's face. And R.C. couldn't totally out himself 
Uh, so all he could bring himself to say to Burkhauer was, oh, I don't, my French is not that good. <laughs> Burkhauer says, oh, give me the list back, takes list back, crosses off the French and adds three more Dutch <laughs> titles. Uh, and R.C. said, in truth, neither was my Dutch and neither was my German, but I just couldn't tell. <laughs> but Burkhauer, too, um, just uh, at the time, he probably was the leading theologian in Europe. And then the other thing that was really fascinating was Burkhauer had just gotten back from Vatican II, where he had as his roommate uh, Hans Kung. Hmm. Uh, so here R.C. and his classmates are getting a first row seat and color commentary on Vatican II. So very interesting. And then Vest. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, Kevin, this is the thing I really enjoyed about the book as I got into it. Uh, in the one sense, it's a love story, uh, the story of R.C. It really is. Uh, they meet when he's in the first grade, she's in the second. Uh, they don't really start dating till junior high years. Uh, then they get engaged at college, married before he graduates. It really is the story of R.C. and Vesta. And um, she continues to this day to be involved in Ligonier Ministries mm-hmm. and helps us out with editing things. But uh, yeah, it's sort of like Martin and Katie. Uh, you know, it's it's the same thing with RC Investa. So, you cannot yeah. cannot overestimate the influence. Yeah, I, th- that was a a pleasant surprise. I mean, I knew that the, the the influence she had, but to see that come through often in the biography, and you know, all of our heroes have have clay feet in different ways, but to see a genuine warm marriage, even it's captured in some of the pictures and their zest and their smile for life and and for each other was, was really sweet to see. And I'm glad you brought that out. Justin, you have a question. Yeah, Steve, thanks for uh, publishing the book with Crossway. It's such an honor to uh, be publishing your biography and I'm really glad to be talking to you. How would you describe the way in which RC was able to combine kind of gravity and gladness. I'm trying to think of anybody else that I would compare him to that could have the, the sort of twinkle in his eye, the ability to to just let out a, a gargantuan laugh and yet also have the reverential seriousness and gravitas. Uh, can you talk a little bit about where that comes from? Yeah, I'd be glad to. You know, uh, first, Justin, you you. You thank me, and I, I know this is going to sound like a mutual admiration society here, but really, I'm so grateful for Crossway for this project. And you personally, you were you were right there from the beginning with it before I talked to Dr. Sproul about it. So thanks for, for all you've uh, done to make this possible. You're, as they all say, you're the Forrest Gump of evangelicals and you just show up everywhere. Uh, so I'm not sure there's a whole lot that happens that doesn't have your fingerprint somewhere behind it. I often so think of Justin book. as Forrest Gump. <laughs> That's for another day. Yeah, life is like a box of chocolates. So the serious question here, uh, I think, well, for one, let's just call it for what it was. He was mischievous. There was a, a mischievous sense of humor to him uh, that that was just fun to be around. Um and you never, first of all, you could never keep up with him, so you didn't even try. Uh, but you also never, you, you weren't quite ready for it. And I think people weren't quite ready for it sometimes. They expected some sort of seriousness, some sort of whatever, and then he would just deliver this one-liner. Uh, I remember, can I share a quick story, and then I'll get, answer your question more. Share as many stories yeah. as you like. We love stories. So, so when we were doing the dedication of the new building over here, uh, it, it was the spring of 2017, RC was there. We got him a Steelers construction helmet to wear for the groundbreaking. And I had dug up a part of the sod prior to this and um, sort of left it loose on the ground there. And I told Dr. Sproul that, you know, when it comes time, I'll take my toe and I'll just sort of point right to where it is and you can just lift it up with the shovel. So I point my toe, he picks it up with the shovel. Then he looks up at me. uh, He's still sort of bent over with the shovel. He looks up at me, gives me this little wink then he looks at my shoes and I knew exactly what he's going to do. And so he throws the, the sod onto my 
shoes onto my dress <laughs> shoes while I was standing there. And of course, no one's seeing this and it's off camera because the camera is, you know, just waist up. So anyway, that was Dr. Sproul. Yeah. Uh, he was mischievous and funny. Al Mohler says, you know, conference speaker dinners are just boring when RC was not there. Uh, when RC was there, it was laughter. And when he wasn't there, you have a bunch of introverts, uh, you know, sitting around eating dinner. Um, I think, and I, I mentioned this a little bit in the book, you know, it's when we realize, when we realize what salvation means, when we realize that Christ has taken in my place the wrath of God upon himself, um, then we can have true joy in the gospel. And I think there's a, there's something to that. There's, there's something to being aware of what redemption really means. And if there's anything that Dr. Sproul vividly grasped, it was what redemption really meant. He, he knew the holiness of God. He, he knew the, the active and passive obedience of Christ. He knew the atonement. Uh, these were doctrines he really knew vividly. Um, and I think that gave him that outlook on life that could be at once serious and at once joking. I mean, you know, this. everyone knows the little what's wrong with you people, that, that thing that came out of the q and I was I was there. I was at that Q and A session when that happened. I was sitting next to Derek Thomas, and we could both see it in RC's expression. We could see that RC was getting, he was angered by this question, and we could see it. And he says, "What's, you know, what's wrong with you people?" And the audience started to laugh because they thought he was joking, and he was, "I'm serious." He turns around and says to the to the audience, "You know, these are all his students." I'm serious. Uh, and, and Derek and I both were doing one of these. <laughs> can, can we can we step back here a moment? But but that was our scene. Uh, and and so there was that gravitas to to laughter. And and I think I do think it has to do with something with understanding ultimate truths. You know, it's it's hard. There aren't many men of his stature and preaching and intellect and influence who are genuinely really funny. And, 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 and RC certainly was, and that's a really important part. And I'm, I'm sure he would say this about himself and, and you would too. It's not some, that's not something you can learn. I mean, you can't, he wasn't, it, it was who he was. And it wasn't something that he thought of a strategy that I'm going to now be funny. It was his very, in some ways, boyish, impish personality. Yeah. Yeah. You say at one point, you know, he and, and Gerstner both liked to growl. They were they were growlers. But he also had that big, wide smile and laughter. And I mean, I... I didn't know him like like you did. I just met him a few times, but boy, I really miss that. And we really we really could use that proper. I like you know, gravity and gladness. That's a very good Piperian phrase there, Justin. Uh, Colin, I would love to know Steve more about Ligonier Valley Study Center. Um, I am too young to be able to relate to the study center wave, but it looks like for the late sixties into the seventies, that was a really big deal. Um, one of the things that I noted in your biography of Sproul is what he would call gab fest. Uh, one reason why I noticed that is because at uh, West Hopewell Presbyterian church, Tim Keller would go on to host something into the 1am, 2am called Gabfest, and we know where he learned it. Uh, he learned it from RC and at Ligonier Valley Study Center, uh, where he and Kathy had both participated. So tell me a little bit about the real Ligonier before yeah. Ligonier Ministries with its video and relocates to Orlando, but the real location of it and the study center phenomenon more generally, which I don't think really continues much, not in the same way, at least as it was at the time. Oh, it's a great question, Colin. And um, it was really a fun part of the book to write. Uh, so it's in it's in Stallstown, Pennsylvania, which is in the Ligonier Valley, which is about an hour's drive uh, 
to the east and a little bit to the south of Pittsburgh. It's a beautiful place of the country. It's the um, Allegheny Mountains, which are part of the foothills of the vast Appalachian Mountains. Just a lot of up, down, twist and turn, rural roads, very rural, very secluded, lots of snow in the winter. Um, and uh, this, this is where it was. That area was sort of the playground for the rich of Pittsburgh. So the Kaufmans, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's, probably the most famous house in America, Falling Water, mm -hmm. built by Frank Lloyd Wright for the Kaufmans, is only about 15 minutes away from the study center. Uh, the Hillmans and Dora Hillman was the benefactress of Ligonier. Her husband, Jane, John Hartwell Hillman, was a billionaire, uh, lived there. Um, the Mellons, the Carnegies. So, so this is just a beautiful part of the country, Ligonier. In 71, Dora bought a 52-acre farm and turned it over to the Sproles. Had an old stone house on it and had their private home, uh, which they called Lecture House. It was a sprawling one-story home. They knocked out all the walls in a sort of kitchen, dining room, living room area, and that could hold 80 people, especially this is the 70s, right? These are teenagers, and they're sitting on the floor, um, and, and they would just come and sit in R.C.'s home and be taught by R.C. And one of the most popular things they did were these gab fests, and it was literally any question. And R.C., he wanted the study center to be a place where people could ask real questions and get real answers. I mean, this was a time of the cultural revolution, sexual revolution. Kent State is literally just across the river, an uh, hour or so and a half drive away. So uh, the Democratic Convention in streets of Chicago, the end of the 60s, these were tumultuous times. Liberalism was amok in the denominational churches, RC's denomination. And so they wanted this place to, to be a place where people would get real answers. And for RC, that would mean for scripture. He wasn't alone as the teacher early on. They brought in teachers. Alec Mature was an early regular teacher there, brought some faculty down from Gordon. Gershner would come and teach. Um, and they would teach courses on theology, on biblical studies. And people just came for it. And they'd sit there and take these classes. And people could also come stay for a couple months, and RC would give them their own study uh, syllabus to study. Russ Pulliam uh, was one of those. And he had already had his bachelor's degree, but uh, felt like he needed some theological training. And so I believe he was at this. Russ says all he remembers is chopping an infinite amount of wood at the study <laughs> center. <laughs> well, he remembers other things too. Um, but this is it. And like you mentioned, Tim and Kathy Keller were there. Here's an interesting fact. R.C. married Tim and Kathy Keller. Uh, yeah. So there's, there's quite a legacy there. But there were also unnamed folks who went. I put in the book the story of this kid who was at parking lot in Roeville Mall and carload of girls shows up and says, hey, we're going out to the mountains for Bible study. You want to come along? And it was just like, sure. Hops in the car. Next thing he knows is at the study center and he's sitting there uh, under R.C.'s teaching. He just keeps coming back and back. Can't get enough. Well, anyway, he he got a copy of uh, we, we put out a little at Ligonier. We put out just the Ligonier chapter for our ministry partners. He got it. He read it. He sent me a text and he said, that's me. <laughs> and uh, here this story uh, that I had heard is this guy. And uh, oh, he went on. It was an engineer, but he's still faithfully teaching Sunday school and has raised his family. He's a Sunday school teacher. And they're still using Sproul video series uh, for a Sunday school class. So just so many people went through the study center and it was it was just a place where they could get teaching and teaching of God's word. Was it was that a sustainable is that kind of why it died out in general? Was it a sustainable lifestyle for the teachers because it is very much it harkens back to Luther House. You you make a yeah. reference there that's right. the, that's the historic example that you give. I think we could throw Edwards into there as well. That was really how pastoral training, you're the expert in Edwards, but that's how pastoral training was done domestically in the home. Of course, the Schaefer's time. the most famous example. Schaefer Labrie, which is more of a contemporary right, to this. Right. Mm -hmm. And they did meet with the Schaefer's before they founded it. And Schaefer warned them that the toll is going to be on your family uh, because this is 24 7. And so after a couple of years of this, the Sproles moved about a mile off of the property. 
because it really was no rest for them. And, you know, it's meals, it's, it's being host and hostess and it's teaching. Um, and then what happened was you ask if it's sustainable, what what they began to realize in the mid 80s was that through the reach of video, the VHS tapes, uh, that, that they could have a much more extensive outreach without this 52 acre campus, which demanded a ton of the staff. And so that was really the decision to move Ligonier to Orlando in the mid 80s, uh, which they did in 1984. Um, so your question about it was it a sustainable model? It it was for a good dozen year run, but but not probably sustainable for for much past that. Steve, when do you think, humanly speaking, RC knew or other people knew? Yeah, this is this is going to be a big deal. I mean, you mentioned a billionaire benefactor, so somebody is seeing something that seems really significant in RC's ministry. What what I was reminded of reading the biography is how peripatetic he was early on. I mean, you talk about uh, Amsterdam and then the Netherlands and New Wilmington again, Wynnum, Massachusetts at Gordon, Philadelphia, a Sunday school classroom in Orland, Orland uh, Presbyterian Church, Cincinnati. I mean, he he went he bounced around to a lot of different places. When when do you think putting your historian's hat on? you would say, yep, that's when it started to go big. And that's when people knew, yeah, this is going to make a big impact. So I do think they never started Ligonier with the idea that this was going to be huge. I really think they started Ligonier just because it was something that was put in front of them. They wanted to be faithful. Two things led into that. One was teaching that Sunday school in the suburb of Philadelphia, was professor at Gordon. He's 20, 29 going on 30. He's a seminary professor, really at the height of what his profession he wanted to be. And by his own account, he said he was bored. And the students were sort of, you know, they were busy, they had jobs, they weren't always paying, they weren't totally into everything in the classroom. Then he teaches this Sunday school class to these Philadelphia professionals, lawyers and whatnot, and they were eating it up. And this was a Sunday school class on Christology. And I really think it was there at that Sunday school class in Orland that the vision for Ligonier Ministries was born. Then he went to Saranac Lake and did a Young Life conference. And this was really a significant moment. And Dora Hillman was a supporter of Young Life. She was there. RC did his first Holiness of God series there. And after a couple of the sessions, she pulled him aside. And she said, if you could do anything in the world, what would it be? And he said, I'd start a study center. And the wheels got turning, and within a year, it's Ligonier. I think what happened was nobody was doing this, Kevin. Uh, nobody was taking the the 18 and 20-something seriously in the 70s. They were being written off by a lot of people. Um, you know, now we live in the age of so much lay education, but there was none of that back in the 70s. Uh, we're on the other end, Colin, of, of your observation of the young, restless, and reformed. Uh, here we are, what, back 06? Mm-hmm. We're 15 years past that. Well, we're, you know, we're before that was even there. We didn't have the conference circuit. We didn't have podcasts. So you, this was a voice in the wilderness. And I think it just connected with people because it was just, it was not patronizing them. It was not dodging questions. It was just serious teaching for people who who wanted who were thoughtful Christians and um, wanted wanted to know God's word better, know who God was. So I think that was the secret sauce. And and then it just kept as as they were faithful. The other thing is, and I love this about Ligonier, and I think this is true of a lot of organizations. They're they're um, convictional and confessional, but they're very innovative when it comes to technology. And they're very, very happy to use innovative means to get the message out. And so they were doing, Ligonier had to send churches cassette players so that they could watch video cassettes. (laughs) I mean, that's how cutting, nobody was, had a video cassette player in 1977, you know, so they're having to send VCRs to churches 
so they could watch tape. So from the beginning, Ligonier was always exploring how technology uh, could be a good through good stewardship of technology, get the message out. You say in the book that R.C. was a populist, which you've sort of been talking about, a wanted to speak to lay people, a popularizer. You know, one of one of the criticisms, and I think it's unfair, but how would you respond? Some people w- would say, even recently reading somebody say, oh, R.C. and sort of others of his ilk, they, they never were well-respected among real theologians or real academics and sort of poo-pooing the kind of reach that R.C. had. Would, did, did he care about those sort of criticisms? And what would be your response to those? I think he was very capable academically. And, you know, he his first piece that he published was a journal article. Um, and it was on uh, Luther and the Solas. And that was the first thing he published, a journal article with you know, footnotes, academic peer review piece. Uh, then the second thing he published, and this was back, you know, there was a time when Christianity Today was a meaty publication back in the 50s, 60s. It had gravitas. So he published it. His second piece was in Christianity Today on existentialism and human autonomy. That was the title of this article. I, I think he could have done those kinds of things. Um, but and he did. He was in the academy. He, mm-hmm. he was at Gordon College as a professor. He was at Conwell Theological Seminary, was invited to go up with the Conwell faculty when Conwell merged with Gordon and chose not to do that. And instead saw himself, as I said, he sort of was bored in the seminary classroom, got really excited just talking to lay people about theology. And so I think he said, yes, there's the academy, um, but that's not his calling. Uh, he just really enjoyed writing books for people in the pew. Great. Uh, I'm going to keep going. Justin and Colin, if you have something, jump in, because I got lots of questions. I want to talk about some of the controversies that he was involved in. So say a little bit about R.C.'s role in the inerrancy controversy, and then we'll jump a couple of decades forward and talk about ECT, Evangelicals and Catholics together. What What was Dr. Sproul's concern and what was his contribution in those two really significant controversies in the evangelical world yeah so the 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 issue in his denomination was the authority and reliability of scripture and then that spills out into every other issue and so he saw at a firsthand look at liberalism both through his college and through his seminary days and the church he grew up in so he was well aware of of the of what inerrancy meant and the and the necessity of it and at the same time he was recognizing that this could be a, a rallying point for folks in various denominations who were in other denominations were facing the same battles be it in southern baptists or even uh, lutherans in the missouri synod lutherans and of course presbyterians and then just across the board and so Early on, uh, they convened a conference at Ligonier. Uh, it wasn't able to held at Ligonier; it had to be held a little bit away at a at a retreat center. And this was in seventy three, seventy four, and it was on inerrancy. And a book came out of that. And out of that, then later came the Chicago Statement, nineteen seventy eight. But back in that seventy three, seventy four conference, John Warwick Montgomery was there. A young John Frame was there. Um, Peter Jones was there from Westminster, California, and J.I. Packer was there. His first time R.C. met uh, his book, Fundamentalism in the Word of God, had just come out, and um, he was invited to come and speak. And that's where they began their friendship. And then that moved into forming the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, and that was the Chicago Statement. And, you know, R.C.'s young in the 70s, uh, but he's right in there. And, of course, joined by Jim Boyce. Um, and so that organization had a 10-year lifespan to just speak into the life of the church on this doctrine of inerrancy. And Sproul was a significant part of it and made a significant contribution to it. So before we jump over to ECT, I want to, and then we'll get to Colin, uh, talk about Jim Boyce, because for some listeners here, Mm. especially if they're younger than us, they may not know 
his name. I remember I was in seminary. He died in 2000, I think. 2000. Yes. Yeah. Hearing that he uh, was in a Bible study with Walt Kaiser, who said he'd been diagnosed with cancer. And then it was so soon afterward that he passed away and was such a significant figure. And for people who are younger than us, they may know some of his commentaries, but not realize the significant role that he played. What what was their friendship like between Jim and RC? Because they were very close, though they they were different sorts of people. What what was their relationship like? So when RC was at Conwell, that's when they first met, and that was when Jim first went to Tenth Press. Curiously enough, they lived near each other in Pittsburgh, and grew up near each other. They were in rival schools. And they would have competed against each other in athletics. But uh, in his senior years, Jim's dad, who was a prominent surgeon in Pittsburgh, sent Jim to the Stony Brook School in New York. Uh, otherwise, they probably would have met on the football field. Uh, then, But they did meet there in Philadelphia. Then once the study center got up and in the mid-70s, um, they just furthered that friendship. And then Dar Sproul was invited over to early PCRT conferences, and then they really became foxhole buddies through the inerrancy and and the, through ICBI and through their relationship there. And they continued that. We're going to get to it, but that they continued that relationship through ECT. And the interesting thing is, too, the families were close. Uh, so, so now Vesta, uh, the widow, and Linda Boyce, Jim's widow, still occasionally call on the phone. And um, when we had the funeral here, Kevin, you were here uh, for the memorial service that we had. Uh, all three of, uh, Linda was not able to travel, but the three daughters all came. And um, it was just a really sweet moment uh, to spend some time with them and just remember how the kindness of RC to them. So this was a true friendship. And one of the most beautiful things I think in the book is not my writing, but it's the letter that RC wrote I was very to moving. Jim. It's so touching. And I put that in there because I don't think people who see the platform speakers, they don't realize sometimes uh, how deep some of these friendships they do have with each other and how important they are. And that just really comes out in that letter uh, that R.C. wrote. I mean, all of a sudden, R.C.'s writing, and then he just stops and he says, I love you, Jim. And I mean, it's just, you just sort of sense this was a true friendship here among uh, among these men. Now they were very different. They used to tease them as the odd couple of Felix and Oscar because because mm -hmm. Boyce would always have the buttoned up prep school, you know, Princeton look, and RC would be the tough guy from Pittsburgh. So they played that up quite a bit. The image of the two. Yeah, Colin. Well, my question was going to be about uh, evangelicals and Catholics together. So I hope to segue us into that one. Uh, thanks, Steve, for including my uh, first time hearing RC in your book. That was really one of my exposures uh, to RC. I'd known about him early on because some older students had introduced me to his writing about Calvinism against Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism, which you kindly had mentioned actually in the book because I talk about it in Young Restless Reformed back in 2008. Um, but then I ended up writing about evangelicals and Catholics together later on in college. And it was RC who was my lifeline to take up a critique. Um, and many of my mentors, whether it be Packer or Timothy George or others, were on that other side. So I've always been kind of on the on Sproul's side, even with some people that I'm really close to. But help explain the concept that I'd not seen before, but I think it made a lot of sense here of studied ambiguity. Because you really you come back to that a number of times in the book that RC's big problem was with studied ambiguity. Um, as he saw it in Vatican II, um, we talked about that earlier, and then through evangelical theology, and especially, I think, maybe culminating uh, in ECT, which it just reminded me of why I had agreed with him about this. But that concept, I haven't quite heard it explained that way. So I'd love to have you explain more uh, to the listeners what is studied ambiguity and why did R.C. hate it? I think because he valued precision. And so the opposite of studied ambiguity is to be precise. And the idea of a studied ambiguity is to allow enough latitude for there to be differences under the same umbrella. And sometimes studied ambiguity is in what you're not saying. And so this is why you go back to the 
statement on inerrancy, one of the most important parts of that were the affirmations and denials. And if you ask R.C., he would say a really important part of that are the denials, because sometimes you have to say, and this is what we are not including. So we are saying this, and here's our parameters, but let's make it explicit. We are excluding this. And so studied ambiguity is allows for more latitude and doesn't make the negating statements. It sort of will look for what we have in common, but not let's not drill down too deeply here uh, because uh, we'll find there are differences. And the the goal of staying together here is more important. And so let's put the emphasis on that. And I think one of the things that I've seen it, that I try to bring out in the book of R.C.'s methodology, in addition to being a populist and some of the things we were talking about, just a really good communicator, was precision. He valued precision and especially theological precision. I mean, his his reading mentors were Edwards and Turretin, These, that, that heavy lifting reformed scholasticism, Aquinas. Aristotle even uh, as a hero. Um, so, so that's the precision piece versus the studied ambiguity. And then it works itself out when he's looking at ECT and there's not as, as much of a discussion of justification that he'd like, or it doesn't get into imputation versus infusion. And R.C.'s raising his hand here saying, you can't talk about the gospel and not deal with the differences on those issues between evangelicals and Roman Catholics. Steve, can you talk just a, a minute about the the friendship fallout from that affair? Yeah, sure. It, it really was, as R.C. talked about, Vestas talked about it. This was the most challenging time in R.C.'s life. It was harder than when he had to leave his denomination and move over to the PCA. It was it was the most challenging time. He talks about just before ECT, I think it was the Ligonier National Conference, he and Packer were on a Q&A panel and somebody asked, do you two ever disagree with each other? And RC answered, I don't think we do, uh, because there really was an issue they were in disagreement on. And then comes ECT, and it wasn't just Packer, it was Colson. And these were 20-year friendships with Colson and with Packer. And uh, it was a divide. Um, it costs those friendships, ACT. So this was this was not easy for Dr. Sproul. And then, I, you know, I'll add this too. It was a little bit challenging to write on it because while Dr. Sproul disagreed with ACT, wrote a, two books about it, uh, Justification by Faith Alone and Getting the Gospel Right. And he named names and he pointed out where he disagreed with, but it wasn't something he was comfortable in doing. And he didn't like to go around running people down or putting down people for their views. He just wanted to extol the opposite, what he thought was was the right view. But it, it mattered to him to bring clarity to these doctrinal discussions. And so it cost him the friendship. It weighed heavily on him, uh, no doubt about it. It weighed heavily on him. Um, and it was both with Chuck and Dr. Packer. And one of the things that I so appreciated about Sproul was that that precision. And it seems like when when our, say, broader Calvinist evangelical movement is healthy, you have both some really top-notch biblical scholars leading the way and some systematic guys. And certainly R.C. did both, but his theological precision, his wanting to and insisting upon those definitions is I th more necessary than ever in our day. I suppose it's always been necessary. But to, to say we can agree on that, but we really aren't in agreement. And so we need to get to the real issue. Uh, a related topic, I wonder if you talk a little bit about his approach to apologetics and how he came to classical apologetics, and in particular, how did he see that over against what maybe is is the majority view at present, a more Vantillian approach to apologetics? I was at a conference one time, and it was a conference for young people, late teenagers, early 20s, so just good Christian living sort of stuff, and, and Sproul was there, 
and I was sitting in the front row and he could, he went up and I think he was supposed to speak on I don't know, the holiness of God or something. And he saw in the front row were a number of leading Vantillian scholars who had also been invited. And I'm sure the person running the conference didn't know that there was any, he, he must've just done something off the top of his head because he was in, in the person hosting the conference looked at me and said, what, what is he doing? I said, he saw those other people here and he went on a, you know, a 40 minute about knowledge and epistemology. And I said, he, he's giving his, his take on apologetics. I think the students were, you know, fairly well helped, but he, he saw there was something in his sights that he wanted to address. How did that become such an important issue to him? You talked about earlier exchanging letters with Van Til. I wouldn't think there was a personal animus toward it, presuppositional apologetics. How do you explain his own view on classical apologetics? So I, I think it's one of his, his main contributions. So you, we've been talking about ECT and stand he took there, talk about inerrancy. I think you have to throw into the mix classical apologetics as one of his contributions. He was a presuppositionalist. When he was in college, his mentor was Thomas Gregory, who had a PhD from the University of Pennsylvania and his master's from Westminster Seminary and taught by Van Til. And so his first apologist, uh, his first apologetics training came from a Van Tilian, a direct descendant of Van Til, if you will, intellectually. Um, and so he went to seminary taking on Gershner in a class because uh, Gershner was up there giving a classical apologetics, apologetics kind of view. So R.C., freshman at seminary, first year seminarian, you know, takes on Gershner. And R.C. says, by the time Gershner was done, you could wipe up the floor uh, with where R.C. had once stood. Um, and so from then on, he was converted to classical apologetics. It mattered to him. Um, I think it mattered to him for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, and I think... Some of this has come out recently and some of the books that are out in the doctrine of God, but it mattered to him because he saw classical apologetics as the better purveyor and the better sort of transponder of good old classical, robust classical theism in the reformed classical tradition. And so he saw classical apologetics as a better vehicle for bringing that to generation to generation, a good classical theist position. What we're talking about here is Thomistic right. doctrine of God and Augustine's doctrine of God. We can leave Augustine, we can leave Aquinas's ecclesiology on the table and we can leave his soteriology on the table, but let's take his doctrine of God. And if you look at Turton, Hodge, Burkhoff, the classic Reformed theologies, they're just they're just following the Summa and Thomas on the doctrine of God. So, so it mattered to him for that. And then I think secondly, he thought classical apologetics was the better view. He, he thought that you could make a rational case for the existence of God and that you could make a rational case for the reliability of Scripture. Now, you still need scripture to present the gospel. And there's still plenty of room for faith in this whole process. And there's still plenty of room for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But he felt that you, he thought that you could make a rational case for the authority, uh, for the existence of God. And he, he used Aquinas's argument. You use that which is known to reach the unknown. You start with that which is visible to get to the invisible. And he saw that as a perfectly healthy apologetic uh, methodology. And he, he was concerned about presuppositionalism, especially in the Reformed world, because he didn't think it was consistent with the history of the Reformed tradition. Let's, let's talk, change gears a little bit. That's really helpful. Uh, we've, we only have maybe 10 minutes left, and we haven't talked about his book on holiness did did R.C. have a favorite book of his, uh, either a favorite that he wrote uh, in the process or just that he knew was the most significant? W would it be The Holiness of God or was there something else? Yeah, he definitely was aware that that was the book. When I first, uh, after that first dinner, we talked about biography, then I had a session with him in his office. And I, 
and I worked up what I thought were some of his major themes, some of his major books. And we were just going to have a conversation. Am I on the right track here? And I sat down in his office. Very first thing he said to me, Kevin, was, you know, I first started teaching on the holiness of God before we even founded Ligonier Ministries. And it signaled to me that what he wanted to be sure was conveyed in this book, that at the end of the day, the holiness of God is going to be the contribution he wants to be remembered for. I mean, we're all fans of David Wells. And, you know, I think it's his God in the Wasteland book where he just has that stinging indictment of the American church that God rests too casually on the shoulders of the American church. R.C. felt that. He would say it's also true of culture, that whether you're in the church, in the pew, or whether you're in culture, what a person must know is who God is. And that is the holiness of God. And, you know, it was Uzzah was a text that just caught R.C. early on. It was Isaiah chapter 6. These are very dramatic texts. R.C. loved the drama of it. They're very pivotal uh, in his own formation and his own thinking. So really, right from his, what he would say, his very first reading of the Old Testament, he often said, you know, the first time I read the Old Testament through as a young Christian, I came to the conclusion, this is a God who plays for keeps. And that's 1957. Uh, and you see it right on through. And, and it culminates then with the publication in 84 of The Holiness of God. Colin and Justin, I have three disjointed questions <laughs> for Steve to bring us home. But before I give that final triumvirate, any questions you guys wanted to ask? I'll be, I'll be quick on this one, Steve. You've used the term, you use the term battlefield theologian a number of different times, and I think it's suitable. And I think the inspiration of Luther makes a lot of sense. Is there a time when that a battlefield theologian can be too itching? For a fight? <laughs> Absolutely. And um, I, I think when you get off of those doctrines that are essential, uh, and RC was willing to give a lot of latitude on those. I think, you, you know, you talk about church government, talk about views of Baptist. There's always this debate raging. Can you be Baptist and be genuinely reformed? RC would say, of course you can be. So I, I think when you're talking about justification, we talk about inerrancy, and and RC would also say, uh, you you cannot believe inerrancy and still go to heaven. So he would he would prioritize the doctrine of justification over the doctrine of inerrancy. Certainly would. Um, and then, in order to understand the gospel, we have to know who God is and the holiness of God. So when you're talking about those key doctrines, yes. When you're talking about some of those now moving out into the secondary and tertiary doctrines, um, he, he he wasn't a fighter on those. You know, his, uh, the disagreement with Packer over justification is very similar to the disagreement between Linzel and Henry over inerrancy. Um, Linzel found it to be essential to be an evangelical, mm-hmm. and Henry found it to be important. Right. And that was enough to have that rift. And it sounds like that's the same with higher stakes uh, between Packer uh, and Spohr. Yeah, sure. And, you know, R.C., he would do, he definitely would prioritize um Scripture, or us, I'm sorry, justification over over inerrancy. Not that he was saying you, it's okay, whatever you believe on inerrancy. He he wanted to fight for that, but justification's at the center. Justin, anything? Just uh, about the church, the founding of St. Andrews, and yeah. preaching from a pulpit week in and week out. And the last chapter, the last part of his ministry, why did he feel compelled to do that? He didn't didn't need the money, didn't need the fame. What was it that drew him to uh, the expository preaching of the word? I think he, I think, well, what drew him was the group of people that sort of just hounded him to start St. Andrews, and he did. But I think it's something that he told uh, John Piper once, Justin. I uh, said, I wish I'd done this earlier in my ministry. It's my only regret that I didn't have a local church earlier in a local church pastorate ministry earlier than than what he did. She started in 97. And I think even now, you know, in Vesta's life, now that she's a widow and RC is passed, she's tremendous support and friendships and St. Andrews. And so I think this is the thing about his church. It was St. Andrews is a genuinely local church. 
and he really enjoyed being part of that. Uh, so he loved it. And I, I think he, it, it, he says it, and I have the line in the book, you know, then in 1997, God did something that I'd never expected. And he's talking about St. Andrews. Hmm. Steve, three disjointed questions. We'll start with the, the least important, but a fun one. We talked about his humor. Talk about the importance of sports because you oh, can't yeah. understand RC if you don't understand his love for sports. He was also a very good athlete back in yes. the day. So how how did sports shape RC the man? Yeah, he was an athlete and got to college on an athletic scholarship. Probably baseball was his best sport, and he wrecked himself playing the others. Um, his knees and so forth playing football, got concussions playing basketball. So he probably should have just stuck to baseball. Uh, but a tremendous athlete and, of course, loved golf too. Um, so I think it did shape him in terms of that you know, game day, put on that game faith. And I mentioned this in the book, that idea of he was the athlete who just left everything on the field. So it, this is some – I don't think people realize how fatiguing it was for him to speak uh, towards the end of his life because of the COPD. So he's not sleeping well. So that's in fact er, interfering with everything else going on in his life. Um, and Eddie would just get up and do it. Uh, you know, at 78 years of age, just get up and do it. Um, and I think a lot of that was the athlete uh, in him. And I think it goes back to some of that toughness, that Pittsburgh toughness uh, also was, was the athlete in him. So second question of these final three, as you look at his life, it... You know, we, we're right to celebrate and see what God did through him. And of course, he was a man, as any of us are. Uh, were there were there weaknesses that you encountered in doing the biography? Surely there 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 were. Or if you don't want to look at that, just things that RC had to grow into that the RC of you know nineteen eighty was different than the RC of two thousand and fifteen. So, uh, however you want to take that, uh, lessons to be learned from his imperfections, the areas he needed to grow, regrets, mm -hmm. change his mind. What can we mm -hmm. learn from those? You know, at one point he gave this in a teaching series and he was talking about sanctification. He's talking about, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he struggled that with that because, and this is his own testimony that he couldn't give up smoking. And um, it was just one of those things that he, personally struggled with that he wanted to give up and yet he couldn't give it up. And then he was having a hard time uh, with aligning that with, well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Um, and then finally the doctors just said, well, no, you're going to give up smoking. <laughs> so, so that was it. But, you know, he, he talked about his own Christian life and the struggles that he had uh, in sanctification that we all have with those sins uh, that are those besetting sins that are difficult. I think he had a remarkable uh, trust in people. Um, and I, I think that was true even sometimes of folks at, at Ligonier, ran Ligonier, and just had an implicit uh, trust in them and and maybe could have been, you know, looking a little bit closer at, at what they were doing. And, and he also shared some of that by his own admission and his own expression. Um, I don't really think, you know, I get, you hear a lot about the celebrity culture and, and there's a lot who sort of poo-poo that and sort of see him in that and, and would consider him one of those that was all part of that. Um, honestly, I don't think that was a weakness, though. I, I didn't really see that in him, that, that need for affirmation and that sort of big on his own uh, ego. Um, so I think some have accused of him of that or just by nature they accuse some big celebrity or celebrity evangelicalism um i don't think he was that yeah he, he never struck me as someone who was uh psychologically needy <laughs> i don't think you would describe rc that way needing people to to give him affirmations and strokes okay so here's the last question you you have a mountain of books from dr sproul you have various institutions, you have the legacy and different movements and controversies. What would you say is his enduring legacy? What do you think Christians will still be benefiting from, learning from 50 years from now? I think it's Holiness of God, the book, 
there's just something about that book. It draws you in and um, it's got so much in it. Um, so I think the book will stand as a classic text. He wanted people to study scripture. And so I think two things will stand there. One is the Reformation Study Bible. And I'm a big fan of study Bibles. The more, the merrier. Uh, so I think the Reformation Study Bible. But I also think his Dust to Glory teaching series. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if people were to just take the time and work through that, um, they would have such a foundation in the Word of God. And I, I think that is going to come to be one of those series that's just going to be rare and be sort of rarefied air, because who's doing that sort of really lengthy teaching series? Um, so, so I would think those are two things. And then the other thing is, you know, he wrote these beautiful hymns and uh, two hymn projects at the end of his life. And uh, you think about some of the figures from church history. We don't read their books, but we sing their hymns. So maybe a few centuries out, uh, some of those sprawl hymns will make their way into the hymnals. That's great. The book is R.C. Sproul, A Life by our friend and a very good author and historian and theologian, Stephen J. Nichols. So really, Crossway's done a great job. It's a, it's a handsome, sturdy book. I know you can't see this on the podcast. It has some great photographs that uh, Steve found in the middle, and it's about 300 pages of text and then some some appendices and some index, but it's a wonderful read. So Steve, thanks for being on here. Thanks for being our friend. Thanks for the work you're doing down there in sunny, warm Florida. It's the only place right now that is sunny and warm. So only one. one. So hope you enjoy it. Come visit us anytime. We we would love to have you. Okay. Uh, Wonderful. Good to be with you all. And thank you for listening. And until next time, uh, hope you glorify God, enjoy him forever, and read a good book. Mm